All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. Today, as I'm told by Sam Lau, is January 11th, 2024, and we are live in the Double Line offices. Uh, we always record live, but for some reason, when we're all in person, I like to say it's live. Anyway, I'm Jeff Sherman. I'm the host of The Sherman Show. Well, I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, today, um, we're talking about maybe this being our final podcast today. But if not, we have a great guest today. We can ramble for four hours a la some other podcasts out there. Right. So this guest I have sitting next to me is Jim Bianco. Jim is the president of Bianco Research, right? That's correct. Right. Um, an eponymous firm. And, um, you know, he's a great macroeconomist, and he covers a lot of things in the world. So, Jim, welcome to Los Angeles today. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm honored that I'm uh, potentially your last uh uh, uh, podcast to host too, too. Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, I thought Lau was quitting on me last year. You know, he didn't show up to a few of them. So we still keep going on, but we'll see. Uh, we need the viewership up. So, right. Jim, we're, we're relying on you okay. to keep this thing going here. So um, we're going to have to sell all these little blocks on the Internet, you know, <laughs> yeah. and we're going to have to get a couple bucks back. You know? A bunch of um, uh, psychologists did a study, and they said that the most depressing days of the year are between January 14th and 16th, about the time everybody's going to be listening to this podcast, and find <laughs> out it's the last one. Yeah. So you're really going to get them depressed. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, well, I guess uh, on that note, uh, let's talk about things. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we are here in L.A. today. We are hosting a roundtable, which you're going to participate in, and uh, – I'm calling it Goldilocks and the Three Bears because uh, there's some negative opinions when we're having dinner last night. Um, who are you? Are you Goldilocks or are you one of the Three Bears? I'm Goldilocks. Yeah. I am the person who at least will make the case that the problem with the economy is there isn't a problem with the economy. <laughs> and my biggest concern is too much growth and sticky inflation, which would put upward pressure on interest rates. And I like to use the words sticky and pressure. You know, when I say that, you know, interest rate, inflation could be sticky, um, don't confuse me with Zimbabwe, you know. And when I say interest rates are going to go up, don't confuse me with Venezuela, you know. But uh, I think we could potentially see the numbers on the economy come in at trend or maybe a little bit above trend. D define trend, because, uh, you know, when we think about, when I think about trend, I think kind of like that post-GFC to pandemic area, what would we grow, like 2.3 uh, 2 or so real yep. kind of average there? Is that what you define as trend? Because obviously things got very distorted. Right. Yep. And that's a good point, because it is a trend growth is that magic number that's not so hot that it produces inflation, but not so low that it produces unemployment. And it's a guess. And you're right that most economists guess that it's somewhere between two, two and a half percent, plus or minus a little bit there. And uh, I'm going to stick with that number for now, okay. uh, that that is about where trend is. For 2023, now we don't have the fourth quarter, so we'll guess, but we we were, we, it looks like the economy was coming in above trend. Yeah. And, and I think that if for 2024, you're probably at least going to start the year that way as well, too, and be at least at that trend-ish, let's call it 2.5, maybe a little bit more. Now, as always, something will happen. Maybe it's happening right now in the Red Sea, or maybe it's going to happen in November on the first Tuesday, or something in between that we haven't figured out that might change that trajectory. But as we begin the year, I think that the concern I have 
and if I was to go with the favorite metaphor on Wall Street, is no landing as opposed to a soft landing or a hard landing. And a no landing just means the plane just keeps flying and it doesn't start to you know, descend in any kind of way. It's an Airbus. You're right, exactly. And the doors stay on it, you know, without any of that problem. And then from there, I think that that would be, be give inflation a problem. Wall Street has another famous line that it likes to use, the last mile, that we're in the last mile to get inflation to 2%. And I think that that last mile might turn into a marathon, you know, if I mis- mix my metaphors again, that it's going to be a lot harder to get down to 2%. Now, the way you do it is the economy goes bad, but they're hoping that the economy can stay good and it's going to go down to 2%. And I think that that's going to be a problem. So walk me through, today was inflation day. We, we got the uh, first read of the estimates on December inflation with the CPI report. There's there's something for everyone in it. Always that, is. It always is. It always is. That is why there's, what, 100 and plus uh, variables inside of there, right? Right. They get, it, they get aggregated. Um, so... What is your read on this? And uh, is it sticky? Is it really, you know, is this still kind of the, I think I, I what jumps out to me is like owner's equivalent rent, driving services still. It's not really the good side that much. You mentioned the Red Sea. What's your interpretation? Yeah. So um, the number came in year over year, 3.4% for the year um, on a year over year headline inflation, 3.9 on, uh, was it 3.9 on core inflation yeah. as yeah. well too. Yeah. Uh, the December number came in at 0.3% that it rose, and a lot of that was driven by owner's equivalent rent, which went up five-tenths. Now, owner's equivalent rent is about a third of the index. Yep. It's housing inflation, so it should be the biggest part of the index because most people spend most of their money on their home or rent or something associated with where they live. Uh, and um, I've been arguing that the owner's equivalent rent part should stay a little sticky, to use that phrase again, as opposed to falling. Now, the reason I say that is I've been looking at it differently. I've been looking at Zillow's rental index, the apartment.com measure, or maybe Case Shiller. These are measures of housing inflation, and I've been looking at them on a cumulative basis. And just to use Zillow as one example... So when you say cumulative, give me the starting point of that cumulative. 2013, 10 years ago. Okay, perfect. So, but as the Zillow index accumulated with owner's equivalent rent, they tracked each other. So they went up about, well, from 2013 to 2021, they went up about 20% together. They were both right on top of each other. Then about 2021, Zillow, which is the real world measure of inflation, took off, or housing inflation, took off, and it's up about 45% from 2013, where owner's equivalent rent and rent's primary residence is up about 25 or 28% over that same period. So it's lagged, Zillow. And so it's undercounted cumulative inflation. That doesn't mean it has to speed up. It's just that this this expectation that the year, the month over month declines in oh, uh, housing inflation are going to fall faster, I think, are going to be problematic because it's still undercounting it. There was way more inflation. Now, what that argument is, is the same argument you hear in the marketplace today. People say, look, inflation went from 9% in June of 2022 down to the low threes right now. The administration's trying to take credit. Wall Street's saying the Fed could now pivot. 
everything is good. And then you go to the surveys, the consumer confidence surveys, and everybody thinks it's terrible. And the reason that they think it's terrible is what they're looking at is what cost me $100 at the store in 2020 cost me about $120 today to get exactly the same thing. It's cumulative inflation. Mm -hmm. Right, right. right. And so I'm looking at the Zillow numbers and I'm looking at the OER numbers in the same way. The home that I could have purchased in 2020, or let's go with 2013, the home I could have purchased in 2013 at, let's say, $100,000 to keep the number simple, would cost me about $145,000 today. Uh, But the inflation numbers say, no, it's really 125000 No, that that's that's the catch-up that it has to do. And that's why I, I fear that the inflation numbers are going to stay sticky. And when I say sticky, I mean in the three-handle range, 3 to 4%. Now, if you're not a bond geek like us around the table, you know a lot of my stock geek friends would say, 2%, 3%, what's the difference? Well, if you want the Fed to cut rates three times, if you want the Fed, you want the market to um, expectations of five rate cuts, um, 3% is going to be a problem for, for that argument. If it comes to pass, you're going to need 2% inflation in order to get down there. All right. So on that note, the Powell pivot, I guess, is, as people are once again calling it, Going back to the November 1 FOMC meeting, you know, the one on Jesus, what was it, 13? Yeah, uh, the one from a few weeks ago. Um, Powell sure doesn't seem to be in the same camp as you are right now. He seems to be signaling that things are going the right direction. He's letting the market run. After harping in, in, in September about financial conditions, the bond market's doing the tightening for them. All of a sudden, he just kind of changed the other directions. Yes. Seeing that on December 13th, him... I thought he would kind of counter this a little bit with financial conditions. They'd ease because of the rate moves, spread tightening and everything, equity prices up. Um, but he just kind of added fuel to the fire on that momentum. What gives there if this is kind of the problematic side? And why is the Fed not trying to be more hawkish in their behavior? So you're right. I mean, he did change a lot. In fact, you could actually argue from his December 1st speech to December 13, 14, he was really saying it's premature to talk about rate cuts and, you know, financial conditions are still tight, meaning that people are looking at their brokerage statements and they're saying, you know, it's not ready to no honey, not now. We won't book that trip to the Bahamas just yet. And then two weeks later, he said, nope, it's all good now. We book can the start- Bahamas trip. Yeah, book the Bahamas <laughs> trip. We're going to cut rates. But nothing really changed in those two weeks. And so <clears throat> what gives? And that's been kind of the mystery. I mean, we know what the reaction from the market has been, but the mystery was what happened in those 13 days or so, Jay? So now I'll put my tinfoil hat on since it's the last podcast and they're going to shut us down afterwards. Um, The Fed likes... We we have a few on the desk. You can can borrow those. So don't worry. So the Fed, the, 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 the Federal Reserve is unique in central banks in that they like to have like a 12-0 or 11-1 vote. They want everybody to agree, and they think that that puts an impetus on policy because they all voted for it, where the Bank of England or the, the Bank of Japan 
they have nine voters. They'll have like a seven five vote or a six three vote, and it's it's like the uh, I'm sorry, not seven five five four vote or a six three vote. It's like the Supreme Court. It's as long as the majority votes, it's it, it is the rule. The theory that I've heard and I've promulgated is we've seen instances. I think what happened. Let me say this first. I think what happened was a bunch of doves went to Jay and said, Jay, we got three or four of us are going to vote to dissent. You still have eight votes. You still get what you want. You're going to get an eight four vote. And uh, just want to let you know. And what we've seen in the and I think he acquiesced. Okay, okay, we've done enough. We'll kind of back off and we'll kind of see how it goes from here. And if the data belies this, I can always change it in the spring or the summer or something. And we've seen this in the past, especially on the regulatory side. The Fed does two things. They set monetary policy and bank regulations. And Leo Brainerd, who is the National Economic Council for President Biden now, uh, famously when Randy Quarles was the um, the head of supervision for the Fed, and they would have to vote on certain rules. Well, he was out of Chicago, right? Your, your area. Right? Yeah, yeah. He's in Utah now. But uh, he would come, the, she would come into the meetings and say, no, I'm not voting for this. I don't think that this is the right regulatory thing, but you could still pass it 11-1 because the whole board votes for it. But yet they kind of negotiated with her to get her vote, even though they could have passed it 11-1. So the point is, the Fed does do that. So you're you saying did. the Fed's better than Congress. Yeah. They can actually they can actually coalesce and, and get together. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly, at least in that regard. Yeah. Otherwise, if my tinfoil hat theory is that the doves kind of pushed them into this is wrong, you're then back to, Jay, we looked at what you said in November, we looked at what you said in December 1st, and then you did a big pivot, you know, the word we like to use, uh, in the middle of December but there was no data that changed. It, you know, there was data, but nothing changed. So why did you change? And that's, uh, uh, you know, kind of the mystery that I'm trying to, you know, kind of color in the, the lines with. So, well. so, so let me go one more question before we, we turn it over to Sam for his, uh, his final questions in, in the podcast. <laughs> um, we're having too much fun with this. Uh, but what, let's, let's play the other direction now. Okay, so we've, we've ignited a rally in rates. Spreads have moved meaningfully as well. Risk assets, I mean, equities did phenomenal in the fourth quarter. Um, speculative assets such as cryptos and the thing have done extremely well. I, we call it the everything rally. What, what precludes the Fed from thinking that this generates what they call the wealth effect? Right. This is the, the term that Bernanke was all obsessed about this right. too, right? And this is why QE works, and, or at least that was part of his explanation. Like, if we have the wealth effect, the Bahamas trips are getting booked, or let's say they're they're moving to they're going to Florida, keeping it in the GDP of the U.S. Right, right, right. Um, what what precludes that from igniting inflation again, uh, potentially going up more? Forget the stickiness, just accelerating from here because of this perception of the wealth effect. It doesn't <coughs> that fly in the face of some of what the Fed is trying to accomplish. Yeah, and this gets to a, a fundamental point about the economy. I've been arguing that, you know, every so often events happen and you get a kind of a different trajectory out of the economy. Financial crisis of 08, coming out of that in 09, the economy changed. And let me be clear on this word here. Changed does not mean dystopian or worse. It means it's just a little different. Sometimes it's better for some, worse for others. I think coming out of 2020, that certain things about the economy changed. And the biggest one is remote work. 
Uh, and what we've also seen coming out of the remote work uh, aspect of it is I believe that we're seeing people have a confidence about their job. Uh, and I'm speaking more maybe for the non-professional classes. Uh, I have a job. Uh, I get a paycheck. And we go spend the money. Well, what if you lose your job? I'll find another one. And you're seeing, you know, UAW strikes all three auto workers. Kaiser Permanente went on strike here in California for about a week. And then, you know, you saw the Hollywood strike, which dragged on. And we had, like, more strikes than we've seen in 20 years because labor feels more confident about their position relative to management. Now, I think that as a result of that, if you give them wealth, they look at their brokerage statement and they go, oh, let's go to Florida or the Bahamas or let's spend it on something. You know, And if it's crypto, we buy Lambos or, or whatever we wind up doing with it. Uh, and we saw that in 2021 because when it was driven by stimulus checks and the big rally in the stock market, Dave Portnoy picking letters out of a Scrabble bag to buy stocks, and, and, and then what that, that was 2020, late 2020, early 2021. And then by late 21, early 22, all that stimulus produced 9% inflation. Well, that was the reaction. Now, if you back up before 2020, when, the, when Bernanke was obsessed with wealth, the wealth effect, what was different then was, I think we we're a little bit more concerned about our jobs. What if I lose my job? And how long will it take me to find another job? And we looked at our brokerage statements and we said, oh, it went up. My, my, my savings increased. And that gave me comfort. I didn't spend it. It just felt better about having more savings is what I did. But today, when we give them stimulus, whether it is the government mailing you a check or your brokerage statement goes up or your Zillow estimate says that your house is worth X more, you then, I think the attitude change now post-pandemic and you have more comfort about your job is we got some excess cash here. What do we want to do with this? Uh, do we want to buy something? Do we want to go on a trip? Well, we certainly aren't going to just leave all of it in the bank and feel better that we have more savings. That's what I think changed coming out of 2020 uh, and the lockdown restart. Maybe you could call it PTSD that the that the worker has because they thought for a minute there they were, everybody was going to lose their jobs with the lockdown and then we kind of survived that. But so what I fear is we've changed it so that when there is some form of stimulus, be it wealth effect or the government mailing money, that that will flow down into the real economy and into goods and services and kind of push those goods and services inflation numbers up a little bit higher. Like I said, three to four not necessarily nine. Nine, you'd, need, you'd actually need, you know, mailed money again in, in Portnoy with a Scrabble bag. But we're not quite at that point. But three to four, like we were saying earlier, could be problematic for those that want the Fed to cut a lot. So I kind of want to go back to something you mentioned before. It's all interrelated to the conversation that we've been having here. And it's the question that you pose. It's like, why did the, what caused the, the Fed to soften their language, particularly in the December 13th movie? Uh, Meeting, mm -hmm. when they movie. Movie, yeah. right? When they start thinking about thinking about cutting rates, right? Right. So, in that, if doesn't feel like they have the sense that perhaps they've gotten the rate of disinflation that they're doing, they're that they're targeting, and they can say mission accomplished. So, 
is that the other side of the dual mandate where perhaps they're seeing things that you know the general public's not seeing in capital markets overnight in the repo markets in uh, even the labor market you know you're talking about working from home is are we are they perhaps seeing some weakness in the labor economy coming forward that we're not getting picked up in the data yet some of it might not be picked up in the data because of what you're talking about from the working from home aspect to a degree as well right yeah I mean that's always possible and uh, they could make that case uh, let me take those uh, one at a time um, when you talk about the repo market in liquidity is there a financial markets issue coming down the pike well if that was the case and I don't necessarily see it I've got some concerns about where the financial markets could be on a liquidity standpoint when the reserve repo facility gets to zero or wherever it's going to bottom, that would be better addressed through reductions in quantitative tightening. You know, so they would reduce the amount that they're reducing their balance sheet. Which is a big speculate. A lot of people think that's coming right now because of the, the, the significant decline right. of RP. Yeah. But other than okay. Dallas Fed President Lori Logan, who the previous weekend that we, we recorded, started saying it's time to start thinking about thinking about tapering QT. Right. There really hasn't been a lot of talk from the Fed about that yet. Um, so, But that's what you would address in that channel. As far as the economy goes in the labor market, um, claims of 202,000, which is where we came out today, that's an extraordinarily low number for claims on an economy that's got 150 plus million people that have a job. I mean, it's way less than 1% of, uh, of the workforce, which is filing for initial claims right now. Jobs were 216,000 again in uh, November. Um, economists would at least estimate that how many jobs we have to create to adjust for population growth and, and retirements and immigration and they would estimate it's around seventy-five to 100,000. And so 216,000 in the three-month average is around 160,000. That's more than enough jobs than we need. There's another measure called the JOLTS measure, Jobs Opening Labor Turnover, which is if you're of a certain age, you probably remember the Help Wanted Index, and nobody uses the newspaper anymore, so they refer to now they look at this JOLTS thing. It's got some warts with low response rates when they survey people, but yet it is, even if you adjust it for its warts, there's a lot of open jobs in this country um, right now. Uh, it is hard to make the case that there is a macro problem with the labor market. Individual markets might have issues, whether they're geographic or industry specific, um, the, but from a macro standpoint, it doesn't look like there's something that the Fed needs to have uh, their alarm bells go off on. Consumption would be another one. Consumption numbers look okay. They're not, there's no real signs yet within the consumption numbers that things are going bad. Now, of course, it can change. Well, what about the idea that the, the credit uh, extension we saw last month, too? Like, if you look at the Fed, uh, the Fed data on the, the amount of credit that was used by the consumer last month, and it 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 does look abnormally high, right? Right. And so, are there are there any warning signs you're seeing from any of that as well? Yes, I mean that there is warning signs from that. There is warning signs, you know, sticking with interest rates that people are talking about that the U.S. government's 
interest expense went over on a yearly basis $1 trillion now that they have to spend. Uh, and that's higher than the defense budget, just to give you a metric of how big that number is. Those bills um, are not called discretionary spending. Right, right, right. right. And, uh, yeah, you have, to, you have to pay back your debt. Um, so you hear people say, well, the consumer's spending a lot more money and the, uh, uh, the, the government has to spend more in interest costs. Why don't we cut interest rates? Well, I don't know. That is not the right answer for that. If, if you're worried that people are in too much debt, if you're worried that the government's got too much interest expense, you don't make it easier to take out even more debt by lowering interest rates. You raise rates to say you got to stop doing this. It's punitive. Yeah, it, it has to be somewhat. It has to be somewhat punitive. And on the flip side, if you actually look at corporations, what's interesting there is the interest expense that a corporation that borrows goes up, but they also have investments, interest income, and because of the inverted yield curve, short-term rates being higher than long-term rates. Their interest income has been rising faster than their interest expense. So the typical corporation is actually in a slightly better position than they were when interest rates were zero. And the example I've used is Warren Buffett is now getting an extra $8 billion a year in interest, in interest income to Berkshire Hathaway that he was not getting two years ago because he's sitting on like $100 billion of cash. And now that cash is yielding him 5%. Where two years ago, his cash levels were yielding him zero. Um, so, you know, he doesn't have much debt, so he's doing better. Microsoft is another company sitting on a ton of cash without much debt. So as interest rates stay sticky high, 5% short-term interest rates, they're not benefiting from it. And you're seeing that in a, in a lot of places. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so from the standpoint of, you know, we talked about labor seems to be okay at this point. Right. We talk about consumptions hanging in there. Um, what is what is the kind of um, I won't say the exogenous thing because that's we typically don't know that, right? But what is the the one thing out there that we're not talking about that is a risk here that we're not you're not hearing from others in the marketplace? Red Sea. I think the Red Sea, as we are talking right now, is a factor that's out there that should be appreciated more. So let me let me explain what that is. Um, shipping, well, let me back up. We work in a just-in-time inventory uh, world, just-in-time inventory world. We have schedules of deliveries that we expect that on uh, this day, the, my receiving department is going to have a truck pull up and it's going to have these items and I'm going to use these items to put together with these items to make my product a car, if I'm General Motors, to, you know, to use as an example. When those shipping schedules get thrown into chaos, then my production starts to slow down. Everything starts to get gummed up, and we have problems. That's what we saw in 2021-22. To give you an example, in July of 2020, uh, this is after the recession ended, the car production in the United States was 200,000 units a month. By September of 21, a year, 15 months later, it was down to 84,000 a month. It wasn't down to 84,000 a month because demand dropped, because that was post-COVID. That was during the reopening. It was, because we're recording in Los Angeles, it was a bunch of ships in San Pedro Bay backed up all the way halfway to China, waiting to get unloaded late 
and then late and that they were going to make those cars, but the parts weren't all in the wrong places. So like I like to say, throughout that entire move from 200,000 to 84,000, the 200,000 units of cars existed every month. They were just in parts all over the world. They weren't in Detroit where we could put them all together as a car. So now, if you look at what's happening with the Red Sea, the Red Sea starts at the southern point with what's called the Bab al-Mandeb, which translates, I've been learned to, is uh, the Gate of Tears. What a pro- appropriate a translation for that. That's right next to Yemen and Djibouti, and that's where the Houthis are causing all the shipping problems. And the northern part of that is the Suez Canal. 30% of all container ships go through that area because that's the Asia to Europe route. They have to now reroute around Africa, and that adds weeks and thousands of miles to the journey. All the parts that we want will eventually arrive. They just won't arrive when we need them. And so the estimates by Drury's and some others is something along the lines of about 30 to 40 percent of all shipping cargo has now been diverted and is going to be delayed. The longer that goes on, the more that these just-in-time processes are going to get gummed up. Wall Street's attitude about this has been, you're right, but you wait in four or five days a week, this will be resolved. Okay, if it's resolved in a week, then it will have some transitory, temporary type of impact. But as it continues to go on and on and on, and we don't get this resolution to the, um, this issue, the whole supply chain is going to get messed up, even in the United States. Because when all the ships were backed up in San Pedro Bay trying to get into Long Beach and Los Angeles, that was a U.S. problem, but it imp- eventually impacted Europe. If this is a Europe problem, it will eventually impact us. That is my biggest concern. And what that would do is bring about goods inflation. Because what we also learned during that 21-22 period is a lot of goods are a little bit more, to use an economics term, inelastic than we thought. You need a car in its late 2020. And maybe you understand what I just said. You know, there's this problem with the supply chain and they don't have all the parts in Detroit and that's why the production is going down. Uh, But if you can wait a year, it'll be resolved and then the prices will settle out and you'll be able to get a good price. No, 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 I need a car now. I, I, need, I can't wait a year. That's why in late 21, early 22, like something like 90% of cars were selling, new cars were selling over sticker price. Over sticker. I mean, that's like, that's like a, an American birthright is to brag about how much you, 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 you negotiated the price down from the sticker. But 90% of the cars at one point were trading over sticker price. And isn't it hilarious that anyone you talk to got a great deal good in their price. car? I had a good, good price. price. And yeah. it, usually uh, usually the, the salesman says my friend behind it. It's a good price, my friend, which mm. means it's not your friend. Right. But uh, I, I think it's funny you call it the birthright. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So what we found is that this stuff is a little bit more inelastic. You need it when you need it. So if the supply chain gets gummed up, oh, yeah, eventually that stuff will show up. But I need these parts now. So who has them? What do they want for them? Let's, you know, I'll pay up to get them now. And then you could see a a reignition of goods inflation. Now, in 2020, 2021, 
goods inflation eventually peaked at around 16% year over year. I don't, I don't think we're going to get anywhere near that. But again, let me come back to my premise. 3 4% inflation, give me a little bit more goods inflation, and all of a sudden I'm still stuck at this 3 or 4% number, and this whole shipping thing is not being resolved. So what I'd say is we're recording on January 11th. You'll, people will listen to this some days after January 11th. If it's resolved and the ships are flowing through the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal, you know, into the Mediterranean and they're delivering to Europe, and then it's a minor thing. But if we start getting into late January and we start getting into February and it's the same story that we have on January 11th or some variation of that, it gets to be more and more problematic. And the last thought for you on this, too, is 70% of ships container ships run on long-term contracts. They're shuttles. Here's my, sh here's a Maersk ship, and it goes from, you know, some port in China to some ports in Europe. And it basically, the, 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 the rate has been settled for a year, and it goes back and forth six times. Well, now it has to go around Africa, and it adds 20 days to a round trip. You can only go back and forth four times, or maybe five if they really step on the gas. Uh, well, I now need another ship to fill in that sixth spot. That's what's called the spot rate in the shipping market. And we've seen 50, 60, 70 percent jumps in spot rate prices over the last two weeks. And if those spot rate prices continue to go up and stay, stay sticky, what that suggests is that we're having a shortage of ships not because there's tremendous demand. It's because they got to go 4,000, 6,000 miles longer, and they can't do the shuttle as much as they thought. And that's going to add shipping costs to everybody because even in the United States, you might say, well, China, L.A., that's not being affected by it. Yeah, but they're going to need some extra ships there, and they're not going to be available, or they're going to be available at a very, very steep price. So it will eventually affect everybody. So these are some of the metrics to look at. So if we see these spot rates high. And if we don't see the Red Sea open to shipping in the next, you know, couple of weeks and it rolls into February, rolls into March, it could be a real problem and it could really translate in more goods inflation. Yeah, and you add on top of that what's going on in the closer part of the, our, closer to us part of the world with uh, down in Panama too as well with uh, the drought that they're facing with regards to the right. air canal. So the... Um, the Lake uh, Guantan is the, uh, is the big lake in Panama, and the, there's a series of locks, and then you go through the lake and then a series of locks the other way. And every time a ship goes through the, through the Panama Canal, it winds up you know, filling up these locks and draining these locks, and the equivalent of about 400 swimming pools of water gets drained into the ocean. Now, that's been the case for 100 years. But they've got a drought, and the lake levels are so low right now that they've been restricting the amount of, of traveling through the Panama Canal and some of the bigger ships can't even come fully loaded so they don't draft as low because of the low water levels. They need rain down there really bad is what they need to raise the level of the lake. Uh, uh, so you've seen a restriction in the Panama Canal unrelated to what's happening in uh, the Red Sea, but it's happening at the same time. And so these choke points are really problematic. Now, it is not viable to go around South America because that's rough seas. So they're now talking about you're going to see more ships docking in Oakland and Long Beach and in 
Los Angeles, and then they're going to be putting them on rail, and they're going to be sending them across the country. Um, and maybe we get back to counting ships off the off the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach again. We're going to go back to the future here, uh, you know. And so, yeah, this is again. General Motors is sitting there going, you know, on February 12th, we expect the receiving department to get X, Y, and Z so we can bolt them on these cars to continue to bolt them on these cars. Eventually, they're going to say, that stuff ain't going to be here on February 12th. It's going to get here, but just not on the day that you need it. I think one more question maybe on the the monetary policy side. Just Mm -hmm. uh, ask you to take off your tinfoil hat and put on perhaps your – I don't know if professors put on a cap or not, but (laughs) let's just say, you know – Talk about the Fed. How have they done with this you know, this cycle of monetary policy? You know, they're thinking about thinking about perhaps you know talking about cutting rates in 2024. You have you know Lori Logan out there saying perhaps we need to reduce the the pace of uh, quantitative tightening. We haven't had a recession yet. Right. 23. It looks like you know in your case 2024 it doesn't look like one's late you know, likely. We have had some disinflation on particularly at the headline level. I know there's you know sticky inflation. Perhaps this uh, goods inflation that might be coming around, but has the Fed? I mean, can they start to say that mission accomplished is getting closer? You know, I, I guess if I was to back up and go big picture, um, we haven't had the recession except Q1, first quarter and second quarter of 2022. So two years ago, we had negative GDP for two consecutive quarters. There's only one other time in American history that that happened, and it was not a recession, and that was 1947, right after World War II. I actually have made the case that I understand why that was not called a recession, but you had negative quarters. You had a 25% decline in the stock market. You had a big sell-off in the bond market because interest rates went up. It certainly looked like a recession, felt like a recession. You had negative GDP, but that wasn't the recession. Prior to that, the Fed was using the words transitory. And here's my fun trivia question for you. The Fed first raised rates in March of 2022. What was the year-over-year inflation rate when they finally got to the first rate hike? It was 8.6%. Boy, oh boy, they waited way, way, way too long before they got to it. So for starters, they really were slow to the mark in understanding that this inflation problem was real and was something that was going to be um, significant. And then they caught up. Remember, we were going in 22, they were raising rates 75 basis points a meeting there for a, for a string of meetings in a row, and they went from zero to 5%. So they kept raising rates aggressively in order to um, try and catch up, and the inflation rate has come down. So now at 3% inflation, they're kind of declaring victory and the parlor game is how many rate cuts are we going to get and stuff. Well, if I'm wrong on my sticky inflation story and if I'm wrong on my trend to above trend growth on the economy, they're going to get what they want. And they're going to get their last mile kind of move towards 2% and they're going to look even more like profits. But if there, if the we're pH profit, profit right? Not F profit. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and if they wind up, but if inflation winds up bottoming here, it's going to look like they declared victory a little bit too early. So it's still out there in to be determined land. So it really comes down to is I think what is the next move in the economy, and so that's where we have to really think about it. And one of the bigger picture on what you asked about. Um, how would we grade the Fed? I would 
Dan Tarillo was a Federal Reserve governor from 2009 to 2017. And he left in 17, and I always like to joke that the best Fed officials to listen to are the ones that just left. Because once they just left, then they tell you what they really think, and they're just not reading the bullet points that they're handed. He went to the Brookings Institute, and this was 2017, and he, said, and he gave a speech. And he said, the Fed has no working theory on inflation. And that he went on to basically say that inflation is this enormously complicated thing, it, you might think you understand it, but when you start digging into the theories and ideas behind inflation, I, I'll just summarize. They're like zero correlated. You know, they just don't really work as well. Look, the speech was perfectly fine, and there was nothing wrong with the argument that inflation is a very complicated thing that we still are struggling to understand. The problem with the Fed is the Fed is, no, 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 we have this lever here, we have this dial here, and you want it to the fourth or fifth decimal place, I'll turn this one, pull this <laughs> yeah. little lever, and I'll get you your inflation rate you want. So they pretend like they've got this all figured out. But in reality... It's really just a big Rube Goldberg machine. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in reality, we don't. We don't have it figured out. So the last mile argument also is prefaced on this idea of, of course, we understand how inflation works. Of course, we understand where it's going to go. Oh, if we did, we wouldn't have saw it go to nine. You know, we wouldn't have been yelling transitory two years ago when it was on its way to 9%. So it is a lot more complicated than we think. So I think it's an open question. Yes, they can back off on the rate cuts, or excuse me, on the rate hikes because nine to three on the inflation rate. Uh, but I don't think that necessarily they should go the other way. And last one other thought I think is important to bring up here. The Fed does a survey of consumer finances. And in that survey of consumer finances, 90% of all financial assets in the United States are owned by the people in the upper 10% of the income brackets. Makes sense. The wealthier people own, you know, rich people own more stocks than poor people. It's not hard to figure out. But if you look at the liability side of the equation, 50, more than 50% of the debt in the United States is held by the bottom 50% of the country. It's unfortunate that the wealthy have the assets and the, and the poor have the debt. That's the way it works. So if the inflation rate sticks at three and doesn't quite get to two, people have said, so, well, the Fed will just come out and say, well, now our new target's three. You know, we'll just move the target to three. Well, the, the asset side of the equation will say, great, great, fine, just stop with the rate hikes. But those that shop at Dollar General and Dollar Tree and have a mortgage that they could barely meet on the bottom 50% and are desperate to see, you know, that, that inflation rate comes down because their paycheck hasn't kept pace. That's why they're telling pollsters they're unhappy. If the Fed says, look, the new target's three, I've done all I can, good luck. That ain't going to work well. That ain't going to work very well. So I, I think that the Fed has to do everything that they can to get the inflation rate down to 2%, if not lower. And we kind of saw that a little bit in 2022. I like to joke that there was a moment there around August of 22 when uh, Jay Powell gave his speech to Jackson Hole, and it was that eight-minute speech that was dubbed the There Will Be Pain speech. Yeah. And, and the joke was... You know, you in the upper 10%, you have to do your patriotic duty. Lose money with dignity because then you'll stop spending it and that will bring the inflation rate down. We're like 180 degrees in the other direction <laughs> yeah. on that idea right now. We're back to, you know, 
buying Lambos and, you know, waiting for our brokerage statements to soar to the moon and all because the Fed is going to pivot. But if we don't get that inflation rate down, we just can't say, ah, three's close enough. Uh, let's just go with it because it's the bottom 50 percent. And Jay has been very clear that that's who he's been trying to focus on with this number. All right. So well, one last thought on this before we kind of wind this down is uh, so you're saying a three to four percent inflation rate. We have policy rate that upper ends five and a half, call it five and three eighths right now, right? That's that obviously connotes a positive real yield, right? That you have a real real yield in the, in the policy rate that's positive. Um, so, do they need to cut at this level? Do they should it equilibrate to have a zero a real rate? What what is kind of your thought of this too? Because I'm I'm hearing this more now. Well, look. Five five and a half is way too high. It's way too tight. Inflation's only running at you know three nine today. Why do we need that? Right. And so that's you know that's the thesis for cuts. But do we really need cuts, or can we moderate with what we have if the debt burden isn't floating, it hasn't reset, if it's sitting out in, in termed out debt? Yeah, this is the Bill Ackman argument: is that um, if the Fed holds the funds rate at five in a three eighths, and the inflation rate keeps coming down that real rates get wider and wider and wider, and they become more and more burdensome to the economy. So the Fed needs to cut rates just to kind of follow the inflation rate down. From 2009 to 2020, real rates averaged 30 basis points. So barely above the inflation, the actual interest rates were barely above the inflation rate. And there was about 30 basis points in there. That was the QE period. That was when the Fed was suppressing interest rates and holding them down. And I argued that we kind of anchored ourselves to that. We kind of got comfortable with, yeah, like zero to 30 basis points is kind of neutral-ish. And then they blow out to 2% plus, and we go, holy cow, that's way, way, way too too much. Well, prior to 2009, the and I'm looking like back to 97, mm-hmm. when tips started trading, these are real rate instruments, the average was 2.7% from 97 to 2009. If you go all the way back to 1962 on actual real rates, where you look at just you know the 10-year yield minus year-over-year CPI, it was around 2.4% from 1962 to 2009. Economy expanded. People got jobs. Market went up. We were fine with that level of real rates in that 2 to 3% range. But now, all of a sudden, we think that it's, you know, opening the third level of hell if we continue to have 2 to 3% real rates. I think it's an anchoring problem. We got used to QE. Well, if you want, first of all, if you want real rates back at zero, the Fed's got to start printing money and buying bonds again. But without that, I think that the economy can handle this level of real rates. And my argument is because it did for decades before QE, it handled that level of real rates. I would argue, as a guy in the bond market like you, I'm going to use the the line that Jim Grant said once, and because he, he runs a newsletter called Grant's Interest Rate Observer, that it is really nice to have an interest rate to observe again, you know, <laughs> that they're not back at zero. And so this has been a good thing, I think, that we've got interest rates again. And since we've got interest rates again, I don't know why everybody wants to anchor that we got to go back to no interest rates all, all over again. We got to get them back down to nothing. One more time. So doesn't this mean that the Fed should not be cutting at this point? I mean, on this argument and this real yield, I mean, 
like the ten-year Treasury today, so let's call it a little over four right, right now, and your inflation rate is sub that. You're talking back if you're using the ten-year now. Just again, they're they're different. One's forward-looking, one's backward-looking, of course. But you know, you're you're in basis points land again. So why why does the market need a Fed pivot at this point? On that thesis, I mean, this yep. is the this is the debate we're having internally, and right, you know, um, everybody's like, "Oh, we're we're gonna get three cuts, we're gonna get five cuts." So, uh, although someone did say we're gonna get one cut in March, and then they're not gonna cut again, I'm like, right. that, that that one's the most perplexing, you know, thing. But why is the market so? What is this? Is it this anchoring, and that there's so many so many market participants that their experience is that '09 experience, and they haven't had it. They're not students of history. I, what, yeah, once again, what gives? Yeah, so I think two things. First of all, Deutsche Bank did a study, um, and they talked about the Fed pivot, and they've identified this as the seventh pivot in the last two years. So we've been down this road before where we keep saying the Fed's going to pivot, and then they never quite pivot. Maybe the seventh time is the charm. The market is priced in five rate cuts for this year. You used to have six, kind of took one out in the last week or so. Uh, I believe they're, the argument, the, the fancy word, is it's bimodal. And what bimodal means is that the market is really pricing in two or three rate cuts, like an 80% or 90% chance of two or three rate cuts, and like a 10% chance or 15 or 20% chance of like 300 basis points because everything falls off the cliff, and the, that averages the five. You know, So that's where I think we fall into this trap that, no, the market's not saying five. It's saying there's some chance of disaster out there, and that's what you're seeing in that tale. Um, but do we even need the two to three is, what, is kind of where I'm coming back Well, to. I think what you're seeing happen right now in the market is that two to three might always perpetually be three to six months away, right? Because yeah. there's a meeting in January. It just and, keeps rolling, yeah. Yeah, there's right. a meeting in January, and the, the probabilities that the Fed is going to raise or cut rates, excuse me, in January is like 5%. And there was a month ago the probability for the March meeting that they were going to cut rates was 90 percent. But now it's more like 50-50. You know, and I, I like to say, you know, basically, if you asked people three months ago, when's the Fed going to start cutting rates? The answer was in three to six months. And then three to six months later, they say in three to six months. And three to six months later, they say in three to six months. And, it, and I think that that's the perpetual game that we're going to keep playing because what I think we're waiting for, why we keep saying three to six months, is there's an expectation. A year ago, it was a recession. Now it's a soft landing. The last mile, we're going to see evidence of 2% because what we're, we're saying is the Fed's going to start cutting rates because in the next three months, we're going to see lower than expected growth. We're going to see weaker than expected inflation. We're going to see signs that everything is slowing down enough so that the Fed could do it. Well, we didn't get it in the payroll report in January. We didn't get it in the CPI report in January. So we'll kind of talk about the May meeting now, and we'll uh, move on to the February numbers. And then if we don't see it then, we'll talk a little bit more maybe about June and May, and we'll wait for the March numbers. And that's kind of the game that we keep playing. In other words, the data is not there now. We're just anticipating that it will be, and it never quite arrives. It always stays just a little bit hotter than we needed to stay. That would uh, be my best answer. It's amazing because the bond market gets so much credit for being, um, putting the air quotes up if you're not watching on the YouTube, smarter yes. than other markets. And when you look at the forward curves, they're just as bad as predictors as equity market analysts for earnings, right? And so it, we, we all get into this because we're all just not good at this forecasting game. 
you know, at least yeah. in the timeliness that we're wedded to. Right? right, right. The bond market is considered to be, I think, smarter because... Because you work in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you work in it. <laughs> but I think what it is is that it, equity markets, risk markets are about opportunity. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to buy this thing and it's going to go up a zillion points and we're, or, you know, 100x and we're going to make a lot of money. We're in fixed income and safe assets. We buy this because it's going to be protection. It's going to be. It's going to save me from myself, and it's going to yeah. not blow up on me and stuff. And so, occasionally, what's happened in the last twenty years is the bond market has sniffed out disaster, and you saw rallies in treasuries, and then we had disaster, and that's where it gets its smart thing. Never minding that it forgets all the upside. It gets right. all that part wrong, you know, and stuff like that. And so that's where it, it, it gets that our attitude. But I agree with you that. Um, you know, these are all forecasts. Uh, you know, what was it? Uh, Yogi Berra said, you know, um, forecasts are hard, especially if they involve the future, future or something right, like right, that, yeah. or something like that. One last thing I wanted to ask is just uh, it's kind of along the lines of the what gives. And that's my phrase today, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So going back, bring it back to recession, kind of where we started. Recession in the historical recession indicators are all flashing kind of reset. We should be in the recession. The recession's around the corner. You start with the LE, uh, the leading economic uh, index. Yeah. You look at yield curves. We're talking about bond market, you know, being able to be a little bit smarter, both the inverted yield curves. A lot of these things are pointing to the fact that if we're not already in the recession, we should see one in the next few quarters. If not, that was said, you know, coming into 2023, you know, we already started to see those right. indicators flashing that ended up not coming through and you're still seeing these things flash right in 2024. So what's different this time? Well, let me start with the ones that you mentioned. The, uh, the conference board puts together the leading economic indicators. There's 10 of them and it has declined for 20 months in a row. Now that's not unusual that it would do that, but the longest consecutive number of declines that it's ever had before a recession was nine months. So within nine months of, of a big, long string of declines, you would be in recession in the average of six. Well, we're in month 20 right now, and it's hard to make the argument that the recession has already begun based on the data that we've seen. So something is already different there to start that, you know, the recession just started a year ago is basically what I'm trying to say. And that gets back to my bigger picture that I think what they did with the LEI is they modeled it on the world because it began in the, their data goes back to 1960. They modeled it between 1960 and 2020. This is the indicators that lead the economy. This is how we weight them. And it does a fairly re good job of telling us what the economy is going to do. But since 2020, it hasn't. So it, it, I take that as an indication that there's something amiss. Like I said, it's changed. Change do not confuse with worse. It's different. And that's all it's really trying to tell us. As far as the yield curve goes, the yield curve is eight for eight in predicting recessions when it inverts. Um, and it inverted, depending on which yield curve you're using, um, the twos tens curve inverted in July of 2022. So it's about 18 months it's been inverted. And the uh, three-month Treasury bill 10-year curve inverted around Thanksgiving of 2022. So it's around 15 months, 14 months that it's been inverted um, as well. So why isn't that been predicting recession? And we've looked at it and said, you know, really what it is, is it's not that the yield curve inversion predicts the recession. It's the uninversion that predicts the recession. The prob or the difference was 
the, the time that the yield curve was inverted was short. So if you took the inversion date or the uninversion date, you kind of came up with the same answer. But what happens when the curve stays inverted for a really long time? Then you got to kind of wait for that uninversion date. And then when we looked at it further, we said, how does the curve uninvert? And to use the bond market term, it's a bull steepener. And what a bull steepener means is short rates currently are higher than long rates and that they fall, short rates fall fast. And then they fall below long rates and that uninverts the curve. So I'm going to use some technical language here. The Fed shits its pants. The economy's going down. It starts cutting rates like mad. Short rates plummet below long rates. That uninverts the curve. That is what is your indicator for recession because the uninversion date, the inversion date for, uh, leads a recession by about uh, nine or 10 months. The uninversion date leads a recession by about three months. You know, but like I said, there's been some inversions in there that lasted like two or three months. And isn't there also there's there's there is some history of the of the bear steepener causing it as well. So that is the back end. That back was the up. late seven, and that that's usually an inflationary right. type of environment, which is causing the reprice of the back end of the curve. Right, and it looked like we were going to get that over the course of the summer last year. Right, it looked like yeah. that, and once you get to that August <coughs> September. The bond vigilantes are back was the, the, the phrase I heard out yes. there, too. Yes. And so that can also lead to it because it's it's that 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 would actually ultimately crimp the economy to you by forcing higher borrowing costs. Right. Right. That in the late 70s, you had you you basically also had peri- the mid 70s, late 70s, you had periods of very long inversions in the curve, 73, 74, 78 to 80 long inversions in the curve. And it eventually uninverted by having long-term interest rates just rise above short-term interest rates. And that's where I think we kind of began this whole other concept we talk about in the bond market, that interest rates rise until something breaks. Mm -hmm. And uh, what that usually means is that when they get to be these injurious rates, they just start causing all kinds of problems in the economy because rates are too high, and they break them. And that was definitely the case in the 70s because you had two back to you had actually three recessions between 74 and 82 that were very, very painful because rates just went to 200-year highs. Um, so that could definitely be the case. But in those cases, you'd need, you'd need another bout, I think, of like that 6 8 9% inflationary world in order to see, you know, the long-term interest rate go to like the 10-year yield go to like 6 or 7 or 8 and just put a big steep curve back on it again. One other quick thought on that, you know, long-term rates uh, rising until something breaks. That has been a very popular term that we've been using for the last year and a half. And we've all asked that question. Stock market sold off. Where does off. it break? Yeah, yeah. Where does it break, right? Did the stock market 20% to correction? Was that the break? The bond market, the Ed McCorry at Santa Clara University has data on the bond market back to the 1790s and his total return indices say that that – 22-23 was the worst total return period since the Civil War, the American Civil War for the last 160 years. Was that the break? Was it Silicon Valley? Was that the break? Uh, and along the way, I, I thought, maybe, yes, maybe. And it never quite seemed to be the break because the break would be sh- uh, show up in contraction GDP, outflow of you know negative payroll reports, maybe a correction in risk markets. And you didn't really have it. The big one was, of course, you know, the banking crisis of March of last year. 
that 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 was going to be it. We finally found the level that we broke something. Well, did we? I mean, we 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 printed 4.9% GDP in the third quarter. You know, the stock market recovered huge and all that's not what happens when you break things. We never came close to negative payroll reports all throughout the rest of uh, 23. I guess it's hard to tell, but had the FDIC not stepped in, where would we be? Uh, oh, we would be in a much worse position, but then that's what the job of the FDIC is, is, is right. It, right? They're supposed to step in and um, um, they're, they're, they're supposed to do this. I think the bigger question is, is that all good regulators, um, you know, our generals fighting the last war. And so 2008, the war was credit went bad. So we passed Dodd-Frank and we tell all the banks that you can't own credit instruments. Credit is bad, bad, bad. So, okay, well, I got to take a risk somewhere to make some money. So I'll take the risk in duration is what I'll do. I'll own treasuries because they don't have a credit risk. rates will never go up again. Right. right. And then rates go up 500 basis points and we have the worst total return sell-off since the Civil War. And then the banks lose ridiculous sums of money. And now what we'll do in a year or two is we'll pass another law that says you can't take duration risk. But then Dodd-Frank says you can't take credit risk. And bankers are going to say, well, how am I supposed to make money? And they'll find some other thing to do. And then that will blow up and we'll (laughs) pass a law and say you can't do that either. And we'll just continue to daisy chain all the way around with all this stuff. Fighting the last war. So uh, to all our listeners out there, uh, make sure you're thinking about the next war, not not the last war. Although I guess we shouldn't use the war adage, you know. Yeah, uh, there's too, enough wars right now. There's enough. We don't need. We have one. current wars that yeah. we have to worry about. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> you know, for all our listeners out there, this is uh, Jim Bianco. Um, you know, we said we're going to keep this to 45 minutes, and I said, Jim, I've I've heard you. We listen to your 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 webcast every uh, every other week, and. They're never, they're never yeah. under an hour. So, um, and you tell us got a little hour. Joe Rogan in it. Yeah, all. no, we're, we're all a bit loquacious. But, uh, Jim, no, it's been a pleasure having you on here. Before we let you go, you know what yeah. time it is. It's Sam's favorite part of the show. So, Sam. Sherman to listen the top of my response. Given the lunches. Is around the corner here. We'll try to keep it short with the responses, but I know it's probably not going to go that way. So we're going to start with Sherman. So we're going to just starve ourselves <laughs> yeah. into that three-hour marathon. Right. We'll go with Sherman with uh, disinflation. Not evident today, right? We had the uptick, right? So, uh, like, I mean, the trend, is, as Jim's been talking about, it's been great. Um, but, um, you know, again, the OER stuff makes me nervous. And, um, you know, again, I follow Jim's research, and so that's the part. And, that doesn't feel as much like an inflation if you're a homeowner, um, but if you're a renter, it definitely does. And further to that, you know, um, if you're trying to get into that homeownership game, so it, it is rough out there. So, all right, over to you, Jim. With let's go deglobalization uh, is accelerating, uh, friend shoring and um, uh, reshoring. Uh, Google is the Pixel phone is now being assembled in uh, India. Apple is looking to move their assembly of the iPhone to India. They still have a lot of parts made in China, but they're also looking to move those out too. So it is accelerating. All right. Bitcoin ETF. Which one? Lots of them. Uh, There's a lot of them that uh, just started trading today. Pretty amazing to see how much volume is in it today. So, um, you know, we'll uh, we'll see what what holds in the future. But um, uh, I know there's a lot of crypto bros that are super excited and... um, I think the Lambo dealerships will be busy this weekend. 
Can I can I can I add a quick one on that one? Is uh, the the word is loss because it's very expensive to run a crypto a Bitcoin ETF, and they've all cut their fees to zero. At least they say temporarily. Good luck trying to raise them in the future. And they admit that they're going to be a loss leader. Those a loss leader for what? <laughs> just more losses is yeah. what they might be careful. Be careful for the winner because the winner might be the one who just gets the most losses. Right. <laughs> oh, you now you sound like a bond guy. Yeah. yeah. Wor worried about profits. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jim, coming back to you there with uh, yield curve normalization. A ways off, I think, right now. It is going to take um, some real signs that the economy is slowing because I'm in the bull steepener camp as being the most likely way that we're going to normalize the yield curve. All right. Sherman, refinancing risk or risks? Refinancing risk. Um, I don't, it depends on what you're thinking about. I mean, if you're thinking about like mortgages and stuff, it's non-existent, uh, except for like current coupon stuff that's been out there Look for uh, it's slightly seasoned. But, um, you know, if you look at what was going on in the high yield market, you know, because that was the one that had the nearest term kind of maturity wall coming into 2023. Um, the, the maturity wall started to really develop, you know, kind of back half of 24. Um, as as usual, corporate America is smart. CFOs are smart, and they used the Silicon Valley Bank um, kind of incident and that rate rally during the late spring, early summer, and spread tightening that that followed on to be able to reissue and, and to go ahead and refinance some of that. And so those maturity walls that were developing in 24 got extended out over the course of that. And then now with the rate rally and the spread tightening, High yield yields are in like 175 basis points since like October. And so that that's going to continue to perpetuate there. So um, you're going to see some in the bank loan market. There's going to be refinancing. And so um, unfortunately for some floating rate holders of assets, uh, that means your coupons are going to come down a bit too. So um, um, it's, it's something that's a positive attribute for the overall economy. And so um, it's a risk to those who own the assets, but I think it's very uh, helpful for certain parts of the economy because that is where the pain has been, Joe. I thought you were going to say something because I saw you get really close to the mic there real, uh, for a yeah. moment there. But I'm going to go on to the next one. And let's say uh, complacency in the credit market. Yeah, I think there is a lot of complacency in the credit market. I think it's a legacy of 2020. Bob Michael, who's the uh, fixed income CIO at J.P. Morgan, said, when um, 2020 came about and credit spreads blew out and the Fed put together all these programs that you want to co-invest with the Federal Reserve. And I think there's a legacy that buy credit, company will pay you back, or Jay will pay you back. And so that's kind of where the mentality is. Now, shorter term, we, we watched the spreads bump up, up, and up and down, but there is a perception that we're not going to see 1500 over on, on, on high yield again because Jay won't allow it anymore. Yeah, he let it go to 1000 mm -hmm. um, But I, on that point, too, um, I think that's a big risk out there for credit. That, and when I heard Jay say there will be pain, I actually read that there is no support for corporate credit. And you have to remember, that was a very strange time in March of 2020. And, like, I'm not for the bailouts and everything, mm -hmm. but, man— there was no liquidity. The world was shut down. Everybody's told to stay home. There was no way to survive there. And so I think it was just an injection of liquidity in the market. And they said, be damned. We will buy high yield bonds. I don't think the playbook really it, it does bring in corporate bonds next time. But we'll have to see. 
I think it would require a deep recession to get to that level. It's not just a, oh my gosh, spreads widened out. We have 800 over on high yield. Let's damn the torpedoes. Let's print money to go buy high yield ETFs. I think that it, it would it would take a, a lasting significant recession to get to where they buy corporate bonds again. But then again, maybe it's because a lot of our credit we owned didn't get the bailout, and I'm, I'm salty, salty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jim, I was going to ask. Although it all worked out in the long run, right? It just yeah. took longer. Yeah. yeah. This could be a tangent off off the uh, Sherman show, so this doesn't count as a question. But um, wouldn't after how many years does the transcripts? Do the transcripts come out that are unredacted for the uh, FOMC meetings? It'll be interesting to see what was going on. It's five, and at the end of this month, you're going to get 2019. So you have to wait another year in order to get the fun stuff. All right. (laughs) And uh, Rosenberg told me last night that uh, he's read them all for the last 30-plus years, and uh, he highly recommends them. They're great reading, um, especially if you sit on the airplane a lot. So, Sam, next time you're traveling, I'll I'll get the report back from you. All right. Let's let's wait on that. <laughs> All right, so Sherman, back to you with uh, government debt issuance. I mean, records, you know, uh, can't stop, won't stop. And uh, what is it, the old Herb Stein quote, that which can't go on forever won't? Yes. Unless, unless it's government debt, I think. And so um, there's no end in sight right now. But um, uh, the rest of our fellow, uh, fellow Americans that don't reside in California, you're welcome. We finally paid taxes in the fourth quarter for 2022 and our quarterly payments for last year. So uh, you're welcome for seeing some of that. Uh, the, 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 I'll, I'm putting surplus in quotes up here, but some of that new, new fresh money coming in. And by the way, everybody ridiculing California for a $60 billion deficit. Remember, we didn't pay taxes for a while either. <laughs> yeah. That money has caught up. Not all $68 billion, but uh, mm-hmm. again, uh, maybe I just get tired of everybody picking on us, but um, you know, hate us because you ain't us, I guess. The, the rest of the world is picking on you. It's going to be holding a snow shovel this weekend. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. All right. Uh, let's see here, Jim. T-bill and chill. Yeah, it's been a very good investment, yes. And, uh, you know, Dr. Jeremy Siegel uh, wrote an update to his great book, Stocks for the Long Run. In it, he says the long-term potential for the stock market is roughly 8%, something like four real or something. But let's just go with 8%, just to keep the example simple. In 2019, you put your money in T-bills or money market fund, you were getting zero. So we coined the phrase T-nut. There is no alternative. Well, in 2024, if you put your money into a money market fund or a T-bill, you're getting five. You're getting two-thirds, I mean, two-thirds-ish of the long-term potential of the stock market without market risk in a T-bill. And a lot of people are like, you know, close enough. How much risk do I want to take for that final third? Uh, considering that the two-year return of the stock market has been zero uh, at this point because we're right back to where we were exactly two years ago, almost to the day. Uh, so, yes, T-Bill and Chill is an, ultim- is an idea. And the last thing I'll mention to you is I always think of a bear market as time and not price. What I mean by time is if you're a boomer in your 60s and somebody said, oh, we're going to have a cyclical bear market in the last five to seven years, that might be 40% of my expected life. I don't want to wait five years to have the same net worth today that I'll have in five years. If you're 35 or 40, you know, wave them in during the during the bull market because then or during the bear market because then you'll have another cyclical bull market and stuff. So um, if you're telling them them those boomers, I'll give you most of it without much market risk. That's why you saw a trillion and a half dollars go into money market funds in 2023. 
Maybe that's what you were asking about reinvestment risk. Yeah. Mean, maybe that was what you were trying to get me to do is say that there is so reinvestment risk in the bill. So yeah. yeah. All right, Sherman, we're going to get into the final round here. You're getting the uh, chat GBT. Does it still or exist? AI. Does, does, it, still, does it still AI. exist? I mean, it was all the buzz back a, a while back. Uh, you know, um, we're not allowed to use it at work. You can't write our research reports. Mm. Um, yeah, look, uh, the AI stuff, it's, it's interesting, but um, I don't know. Uh, it may replace us one day, and if so, then um, we're going to be T-billing and chilling, I guess. All right. So I'll give you a quick three seconds where we use it that it's useful is I do my podcast, as you talked about. I get my audio. I feed it into ChatGPT. It not only converts it to a transcript, but then it cleans up the verbatim language into something a little bit more readable in one second. And it's very, very useful in that regard. I should probably do that for us, too, because um, I got a lot of ums and uhs. And, yeah, yeah, gets rid of that, and it restructures the sentences so that they're more readable. You still have to review it to make sure it didn't change the meaning. It does a little bit here and there, but it really makes the process a lot Jim, more. Jim, so efficient. does compliance. When they, yeah. they listen to what I say, yeah. they change the yeah. meaning of all of it, too. Yeah. So I'm looking at our compliance uh, person yeah, we, here today. It's a reflex, yeah. reflexive look over yeah. there. So let's close it out here, Jim. The, perhaps the, the final question for this segment or it is the final question for this segment but the 49ers the, the 49ers it may be the <laughs> final, it's always uh, the answer <laughs> the last one for the Sherman show as well so uh Green Bay Packers um oh you're saying weekend, the team that always beats them in the playoffs yeah the they're, 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 <laughs> so so I'm, I'm from only Ch when they're only when they're I'm, I'm from Chicago the Green Bay Packers have now beaten the Bears 10 years in a row you have to go back pre-COVID the last time they won them. So you say Green Bay Packers. I say 0-16 and close the organization down for good. <laughs> um, so I guess uh, no Lambo leap for you. No, yeah. no. All right, Jim. Well, thanks again for joining the podcast. Thanks, everyone, Thank for listening. Uh, send us some feedback. Um, you know, uh, let us know what you think about all this. Um, Jim, it's always a pleasure. It's great talking to you. And um, even if we don't do a podcast, let's just do it again. Yeah, we don't let anyone like, else do it. Yeah, sounds like a plan. Thank All you. Right. I really enjoyed it. Take care, everybody. Bye for now. This presentation was recorded on the date indicated. Views and opinions expressed herein are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of Doubleline Capital LP, its affiliates, or employees, should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. The presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representations or warranties regarding the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this material. Liability, including any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is explicitly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice. The receipt of this presentation by any listener should not be construed as the provision of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual, nor does it imply that such person becomes a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but it does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023, Double Line Capital.